From WPVMLP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Jonathan Ammons. Lexi Harvey is away this month. We're actually still on season break, putting together the next season of the show. So today, I've put together a collection of stories we've loved throughout our five-year stretch. Stick around, because you're going to want to hear these. But first, here's the latest from a killer record from Nico Paolo. Back in 2019, that's season two of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, Andy Winder told us a story about when he transitioned while living in a conservative Christian community, and how his lessons about masculinity largely came from watching his father in the kitchen. It's a powerful story, one I think we should all take to heart. I finally reached the boring adult milestone, where the happiest part 
of this month was buying myself a blender. That's not to say I've had a rough time lately. The idea of making caffeinated smoothies for breakfast thrills me, and the strawberry basil smoothie I made this weekend can attest to that enthusiasm. It reminds me of how far I've come as an amateur cook. When I started learning to cook for myself, I attended a university that, at the time, banned the sale of caffeine on campus. Until 2017, Brigham Young University didn't even stock their vending machines with Diet Coke. You had to buy the weird, produced specifically for Mormons, caffeine-free Diet Coke, and at that stage, what's the point? The cafeteria wasn't much better, especially for a shy sophomore who found the crowds overwhelming. I didn't always fit in at BYU, and not in the loner, no-one-gets-me kind of way. I wanted to belong, but my social anxiety often persuaded me that I didn't. And on top of all that, I'd just begun taking testosterone injections so I could transition to male. We have a term for the first few years after someone starts hormone replacement therapy, or HRT, in the trans community. Second puberty. As you can guess from the name, it's an awkward time. Your body's changing. Your mood is swinging. And once again, you're trying to answer the question, Who am I? And what does it mean to be me? I grew up in a family of four sisters, so I didn't have a sibling I could ask about what it meant to be a man, but I did have my dad. In many ways, my dad mirrors what you'd traditionally think of when you hear the word masculine. He's devoted to the Utah Jazz and BYU football teams, even when they have bad seasons or years or decades. He runs his own business out of his warehouse and taught me that sometimes tough work, physically and emotionally, is necessary to take care of those you love. He loves alternative rock and hates sensitive artists like Hozier or Sam Smith with a passion that I don't fully understand. But he loves to cook. As long as I can remember, he's been the parent who makes family dinners on Sunday breakfast. Not because my mom can't, but because he truly enjoys it. For my dad, cooking is how he shows his affection, and he's genuinely offended if we refuse something that he made. I never had to put up with Eggo waffles or Raisin Bran growing up because for breakfast, Dad would make blueberry pancakes with homemade syrup or egg in a holes with dill and avocado. Sundays were cinnamon roll Sundays, and we'd return from church to enjoy cinnamon rolls that Dad had made from scratch in our bread maker. But the best food he ever made was his authentic German dinners. In the early 90s, shortly after the Berlin Wall fell, which he had a piece of, my dad spent several years in Dresden. Even though he returned to the United States, he never lost his passion for German cuisine. He made us everything from spätzle to goulash to breaded schnitzel and rotkohl, and all of it was delicious. My mom likes to brag to others that in her house, she can leave the cooking to her husband. When I was a kid, I remember some of her friends thought it was odd or even funny. My mom has never cared about gender stereotypes when it comes to chores. She makes a point of mowing the lawn every weekend before my dad can stop her because it makes her feel empowered. In a simple way, my dad showed me that being a man or a woman or a person in general is more than adhering to social traditions. Our humanity is much deeper than that, and I think it's the same with gender identity. My dad cooks for us because it's his way of caring and providing for his family. When my dad first began his business, this wasn't always easy, 
Some months, we couldn't afford to keep the heating on and had to boil water for our baths, but he made sure that his children were fed no matter what. Whatever masculinity really involves, I can't think of anything more important than loving others in the best way you can. So I guess it was fitting that I started to cook around when I chose to transition. Inadvertently, it reminded me that the overlap between being a man and being a good person is nearly complete. One of the first dishes I learned to make for myself was Rotkohl, a German side dish made from red cabbage, vinegar, sugar, and bacon. I could have chosen a more practical recipe, but as strange as it sounds, Rotkohl is one of my comfort foods. It reminds me of home. When I cooked it for the first time, my roommate peered into the pot, scrunched up her nose, and said, why is it purple? I don't think food's supposed to be purple. I never gave her a satisfactory answer to that question, nor did I convince her to try it. But while it turned out a little too sour the first few times, I still felt proud of myself. With hours of experimentation in the kitchen involving the only guinea pigs I could convince to eat my food, my partner Mac and myself, I've developed a knack for a few dishes. Mac loves my beef stew, and I'm particularly confident in my quesadilla making abilities. Sometimes, if my introverted self is in the right mood, I even invite people over for meals. When I moved into my first apartment outside of campus housing earlier in the year, I invited some friends over for brunch. These friends were fellow trans students from my time at BYU. Some of us transitioned while we were students, some of us waited until after we graduated, and some are still deciding what's best for their situations. Without these friends, I don't think I could have made it through my college years. Transitioning at a conservative Mormon university was hard, but having friends who empathized and lifted each other up made the difficulties worthwhile. I'm an avid cook, but definitely not a gourmet one, so I just stuck with making waffles for them. But even though the menu was simple, I thought about my family's breakfast growing up and smiled. I guess that's just what Winder men do. Cook for their family. That was Story reading Andy Winder's piece, Next Course. You can find that story and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. 
The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
how we eat is always a personal thing, but the ripples of those choices seem to make a lot of wakes among family and friends. In this story from Season 3 of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, Kim Freeman remembers her family's reaction to a diet that caused what felt like a hurricane in her family circle. Here's Lee Glass reading her story, Hillbilly Vegan. Imagine if you tuned into the Beverly Hillbillies one day and saw Ellie Mae rejecting Granny's vittles after spying ham hock bits floating in the dandelion greens. She looks at her family, picks up her pet chimpanzee, and announces she no longer eats anything with a mama. You can picture the reaction, especially from Jed, who made their fortune, shooting at some food, and up through the ground came a bubbling crude. Take away the ridiculousness of that premise, the mansion, the chimpanzee, and so forth, but keep a family steeped in the Appalachian tradition of hunting and eating meat, hearing a few years ago that their daughter went vegan. If my Kentucky family measured pronouncements like earthquakes, adopting veganism was just slightly less on the moment magnitude scale than the guess-who's-coming-to-dinner reveal of my soon-to-be husband Clayton several months earlier. Resulting damages including being kicked off the 125-person guest list for my stepfather's 70th birthday. It was explained we'd be a distraction. An interracial couple at a party in Lexington in 2015 was apparently more than the genteel folks could handle. Fortunately, on that topic, they fully repented. Now my 76-year-old mother is a staunch anti-racist ally and gives no quarter to those who aren't. To be fair, it was understandable that they thought giving up meat and dairy was as unnatural as a two-headed frog. For more than 50 years, I had happily consumed animal products, as had my husband, a phenomenal self-taught cook. In our first couple of years of marriage, Clayton fattened me up, feeding me as one of his love languages, on fork-tender baby back ribs smothered in his special barbecue sauce, ham hock-infused greens, a favorite apparently not reserved for hillbillies, and to-die-for macaroni and cheese. He explained to me early on there's few culinary topics as serious as mac and cheese in the black community. His dish contained at least four varieties of cheese, perfectly cooked elbow macaroni, just the right amount of seasoning, never measured, of course, and then baked until the top bubbled up into spots of golden brown. And never, ever was mac and cheese served without being baked. That was straight-up ancestral blasphemy. As a daughter of Appalachia, my father hunted in the eastern Kentucky hills and often brought home wild game, the variety depending on the season. Because squirrel season was one of the longest, I have vivid memories of sacks filled with buckshot-ridden squirrels. He skinned them on the front deck of our creekside home, sometimes preserving the pelts or the bushy tails. With the point of a small bone-handled knife, he cut off the head and slid open the chest cavity to pull out the tiny organs. Then he laid their slender naked bodies marked with pinprick crimson rimmed holes on a nearby table. My older brother hunted too. He took an academic approach to the sport, telling us that during his first year at Princeton, he studied squirrel movements from his dorm room window. We chuckled about him needing an Ivy League education to outsmart tree rodents with brains the size of the walnuts they gathered each fall. It takes a lot of squirrels to make a meal. My mom, tasked with critter cooking, would freeze them until an annual wild game feast we hosted at our log cabin guest house that was nestled against the backyard hillside. Game of all kind was served, including local favorites such as grouse, quail, turkey, deer, squirrel, rabbit, and groundhog, 
and more exotic big game like moose, elk, and Canadian goose from hunting trips out west or up north. Squirrels and rabbits were fried and served in a gravy made of flour, milk, salt and pepper, and the skillet scrapings left in the cast iron frying pan. Both required some care while eating to avoid cracking a tooth on a stray pellet. Our modest ranch-style home and the backyard log cabin were filled with hunting trophies. From mounted glassy-eyed deer heads and silky soft rabbit pellets to a stuffed grouse frozen forever with its wings spread to take flight, we were surrounded by these death relics. I never thought much of it or the number of animals I witnessed being skinned, gutted, and dressed. Upon reflection, it seems a fitting atmosphere mirroring the emotional and verbal violence my father inflicted upon us. Undoubtedly, were he not already dead, my veganism would have been met with thunderous vitriol and a vicious mocking. My black husband would have hastened his eternal dirt nap. Given the amount of diverse meat I consumed growing up in the hills and clearly being numb to animal slaughter that was woven through childhood, my transition to veganism was improbable. When it occurred, skepticism, even derision, was expected. But our decision was multi-layered. After doing some research, we felt giving up meat and dairy was best for our health, the environment, including animals, and could be an outreach to minority communities. It is no secret that racism permeates the U.S. healthcare system, leaving blacks and other people of color with the highest rates of heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, and stroke, which results in lower life expectancies and poor quality of life. We've seen the evidence of these inequities recently as COVID-19 has disproportionately killed minorities. Unarguably, better nutrition could help. My husband long shunned what he calls slave food, including chitlins, pig and chicken feet, oxtails and neck bones, or any dishes deep fried and overly salted. Prior to embracing veganism, we already ate a lot of vegetables and fruit, so the transition wasn't difficult when combined by his cooking skills. We did it overnight. One day omnivores, the next day herbivores. We get a lot of questions like, how do you get enough protein? And, but what do you eat? People are surprised when we explain there's a protein in plants. As for what we eat, we consume everything but animal products. Everything includes about 90,000 edible plants, plus a plethora of vegan substitute meat and cheese products made from, wait for it, plants. As we dove into our new lifestyle, Clayton did what he does best, make delicious food. We'd share with family and friends, including the hillbilly relatives, and were universally met with rave reviews and the repeated comment, can't believe it's vegan. He kept churning out fantastic plant-based food, experimenting with flavors and techniques and using my coworkers as his taste testers. All the while, I watched his passion for vegan food grow as he focused on what this could mean to his community. I started encouraging, perhaps pestering, him to make it a business. It took me months to convince him, finally winning him over on an anniversary trip to Maui. And I know what to call it, I told him as we walked the beach. Can't believe it's vegan. We came home and announced we were starting an all-delivery vegan food business. Besides introducing people to the best vegan food in central Ohio, we've remained dedicated to educating African Americans on veganism and how plant-based eating is their real culinary heritage. We are heartened to see veganism is catching fire with minority communities as people embrace their roots and focus on bettering their health. Then the world turned upside down from a global pandemic 
requiring lockdown orders, shutdowns, and social distancing. But our little all-delivery business has survived so far. If this story were a Lifetime movie, it would end with my hillbilly kinfolk coming to some epiphany about veganism. We'd snack on some roasted red pepper hummus and laugh about their initial resistance. At best, we just don't talk about it. Like Vegan Fight Club. They still enjoy my husband's cooking and support our business from afar. Yet we know some shake their heads and struggle to understand. But we remain committed to our choice and like our hypothetical Ellie Mae, plan on living our remaining years refusing to eat anything with a mama. Sometimes our enemies become our greatest teachers. And sometimes those enemies deserve something a bit sweeter than revenge. In season two, Trisha Stearns gave us a piece about how she learned more than she expected from a neighbor she could hardly stand. It's a lesson I think we all find ourselves returning to from time to time. Here's Jesse Shires reading Brownie Pie. Walking along a city sidewalk, I see a woman from my past. Fancy Nancy is what I called her in my head. She approaches, a little older, but visibly the same, wearing a smart fedora and black capri pants, still projecting her bulletproof demeanor. I drive an hour away for yoga class for a reason. Anonymity. I'd rather be ignored in the big city by assholes I don't know than run into suburban assholes I do know. I look down at my phone to avoid eye contact. It's been years since we've seen each other. Our girls were often in the same classes growing up. Although we were never friends, Fancy Nancy and her kids were always around, like flies you can't seem to chase out of the kitchen. I can still see Nancy's silver minivan door glide open in the carpool line. Her perfectly coiffed daughters bounce out, their kids clean like they're right out of the box, their sensible bobs tucked neatly into headbands. Take out a stick of unsalted butter and bring to room temperature. Measure a half cup of flour, sliding a knife across the top to level it. Repeat with one cup of sugar. Blend together in a mixing bowl. Hey there, how are you? She says brightly as we approach. Oh, hey, Nancy, gosh, I haven't seen you in years. How have you been? We should chat sometime. I walk and wave, leaving no room for conversation. I get in my car toss aside my yoga mat and adjust my rearview mirror to watch her get into a shiny black sedan. Just like that, I am transported to 1999. The scent of popcorn fills the middle school gym. The coach's shrill whistle signals a pregame warm-up and multiple basketballs bounce on the squeaky floor as awkward boys scramble on the court. The foot-long video camera rests heavy on my shoulder as I prepare to record my middle daughter, Mallory, singing the national anthem before the game. I hand Julia, my youngest, change to buy popcorn, and zoom the camera lens on my oldest daughter, Meredith, waving green and silver pom-poms on the sidelines with the seventh grade cheerleaders. Then I focus on Mallory, microphone in hand, waiting to perform. My chest pumps with pride. In this moment, I have nailed the single mom challenge. I even had the right change for popcorn. But as I scan the audience of perfect, intact families, My neck prickles with fear for all the things that could go wrong as my girls put themselves out there in the public arena and risk judgment. Add one-fourth cup of cocoa, butter, how many eggs, and, and one teaspoon of vanilla. Beat at medium speed for three to four minutes. Spread evenly in a buttered nine inch pie plate. 
No, no salt or baking soda? I want someone to be able to make a brownie pie from reading your story, so don't leave anything out. Nancy stands next to me, her jeans stiff, her white blouse starched, her brunette bob smooth. Her shoes match her purse, lava orange with a brass designer insignia at the center. Oh, hey, she says, patting me on the arm like we're friends. I know you must be so proud of Mallory, she says, her voice dripping saccharin. I smile in response, and she continues. At least she won't be known around school as one of the saran wrap girls. Her eyes shift from Mallory, waiting in the center of the court, to Meredith on the sidelines. I peer through the viewfinder while my mind flashes through a Rolodex of conversations, scenes, and incidents from the past six months, trying to figure out what Nancy's talking about. Oh, say can you see? Mallory begins to sing, and I hope my trembling doesn't mar the recording of this moment because my mind is racing too fast to take it in. My flip chart of memories lands on Meredith's 13th birthday, her presents covered in plastic wrap, and the day I sorted laundry, pulling wads of plastic wrap and notes from the pockets of her jeans. I didn't stop to read them. I had to get to work. I had deadlines. I had kids to cart around. I don't have to wonder long. Nancy is still at my side and fills in the details. A cheerleader slumber party. A forced initiation requiring Meredith and the other younger girls to French kiss each other. Meredith's suggestion they place saran wrap between their mouths. Rumors that Meredith enjoyed it. My stomach flips. Nancy feels too close. I angle the camera on Meredith, standing still, pom-pom over her heart. I'm overcome with the desire to grab her hand and run. I want to take her someplace safe where she can stay a little girl a while longer. I want to tell her she is enough just the way she is. I want to warn her not to get sucked into this world. It will eat you alive. I want her to stay young and naive and live under my roof forever. And when forever is up, to be ready. How did I not know about this? Was I too busy? Did she try to tell me and I cut her off, ordering her to clean her room? How could I be so obtuse? My face says it all. Oh my, you didn't know, Nancy says. Bake at 325 for 35 to 40 minutes. Check for doneness by sticking the pie with the tip of a knife. If it comes out clean, it is ready. Cool 10 minutes. Back home, I tuck the girls in bed and head to the kitchen. There is only one thing to do. Bake a brownie pie. It is a tradition in my family in times of celebration or sorrow. I sip a glass of red and rush the process. The butter is not quite soft enough. The batter is hard to spread. The pie is forgiving. Thirty minutes pass like forever. I walk upstairs to Meredith's room, crawl onto her denim bedspread, and offer her a fork, the warm pie between us. We talk about the obvious, the goodness of warm chocolate. Her childhood dolls stare at us from the window seat. Dirty clothes litter the floor. Halfway through the pie, I ask Meredith about the slumber party. She talks. We both cry. When it happened, she didn't tell me because she knew I would get angry, that I would pound down parents' doors, that my actions would contribute to her humiliation. And she was right. Sensing the tension that simmered beneath our daily existence and the ease with which it could explode any minute, Meredith hid her pain from me because she feared my reaction. I thought I was a good mother. I fed my girls fresh vegetables. 
I sheltered them in a nice home. I told them to be strong, practice faith, study hard. But now it was clear. So many of my parenting moments had been fraught with mixed messages from lessons I was still learning myself. Being a single mom in suburbia trying to scrape enough together to keep my family fed had fueled my own insecurities about fitting in. I had grown so focused on making money and projecting a pulled-together image that I did not pay attention to what was right under my nose. I finished the pie myself that night. I wish I could say the lessons I learned that day made middle school a breeze for my girls. I can say we survived, and I did start paying attention, not just to my daily conversations with my family, but with myself. Now that my girls are grown and on their own, I bake fewer brownie pies these days. But as I watch Nancy and her black sedan ease out into the busy noonday traffic, I think it might be a good afternoon for a pie. When I take the first gooey bite of chocolate, I taste the painful moments of my life, but also the pleasurable ones. I taste the touch of a tiny hand reaching for mine as we cross a street. I taste the struggles over prom dresses and the memories of curlers, crayons, and chores. I call Meredith. She tells me that she heard Nancy was battling bone cancer. I'm shocked, feel guilty. I should have stopped to talk to her. Because of Nancy, I learned to pay more attention to my life. She upped my parenting skills. I am reminded by her illness that trouble is a variable in everyone's life. It finds us all at some point. Of course it would find Nancy too. Once again, she has taught me a life lesson. I take out a stick of butter and set it on the counter. I measure out the flour. I look up Nancy's address.
When Shauna Beestock became a foster parent, she didn't expect to have a revelation about her relationship with food. But that's exactly what she got. Here's her story, Feed, Foster, Respite, from Season 4 of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, read by Tracy Johnston Crum. I have a teenager arriving at my house to stay the weekend. I have dinner on the stove, Cheerios in the pantry, PB&J in the fridge. None of these things are typical for me. I'm 47 years old. But recently, I became a foster youth respite provider, taking care of teens for long weekends so they and their foster families can get some space from each other. The space that opened up for me, too, was much, much larger than I expected. I know nothing about Jay until I open the door to him. He takes up space in my kitchen while trying to disappear. A large, messy teen uncoordinated and jerky in both movement and communication, as if he can't decide whether to punch through the borders between himself and the world or build more walls. I have made spaghetti and meatballs, something I have only read about and never actually made, but seems aggressively normal. Jay is my first respite kid, and I'm clearly out to prove something. I spoon some onto my plate, but can't eat it. I'm not sure whether it's excitement or appetite or fear. I'm all over the place inside my body. He eats half the pot at the first go. He doesn't seem to care about my plate at all. The light washes over me. I have fed a human being. I look at my plate and I want to laugh. I eat dinner. Afterward, Jay retreats into a virtual world, and I feel expansive, like I've broken through the forest on a long hike up to clear sky and mountain views. I wash the dishes and think about my parents. Making this dinner cracked open a floodgate of understanding. Not so much about myself. I've been in conversation with myself about food, hunger, control, power, and space for a long, long time. 
but for what my own mom and dad went through when my eating disorder first took root. I'm very close to my parents. I've been working with kids and teens for decades, and I've done my share of therapy. But feeding foster youth has been a new adventure, putting me in a different relationship with my own body, boundaries, and capacity. My home feels like it's bursting with food now. All these cans and bags of rice and freezer full of fruit and veggie burgers that never used to occupy these cabinets and drawers. It's part of my licensing. It's required that I stockpile food in case of disaster. This, for the woman who lived for years with only a few yogurts in the fridge and protein powder in the pantry. I am fortified. And yet, that yogurt girl wants to flail when it comes to producing a meal. It's like I have a closet full of clothes and can easily dress for the weather and go out clothed. But what would I wear for a date or a job interview? Presentability is not my forte. But for these kids, I want to try. I'm up front with them. I'm more of a snack person, I explain. But let's try for one to two meals together a day. One of the best tools in my recovery from a 35-year-old eating disorder was finally freeing myself from traditional meal expectations. I don't need to tell these kids that I find that momentarily shutting out the world, focusing on nourishing my body, allowing it to be contrary and isolated. Creating this space helps me build a more authentic and positive relationship with my body and re-enter the world with less shame. Another foster kid, B, comes to stay for a few nights. B is trans, refuses to bathe, may or may not have a spectrum disorder, likes to go on walks and collect things like sticks and wrappers. I sense shame and confusion roiling around, control issues like a stash of fireworks ready to blow in all directions by an errant spark. I feel like I have met B in various forms a million times in my career. The foster parent called and texted for a week prior to the visit. She's desperate for respite at her wit's end. I feel like a servant, she says, and they never eat what I make. Every day their tastes shift, and they hate eating with us at the table. I'm doing my best, but they are just driving me nuts. B attacks their noodles with all ten fingers, cramming them into their mouth. They wake up with hunger for eggs, excited to identify their desire, but subsequently terrified of the egg's sliminess. The pancakes are too sweet, but the Cheerios look suspiciously healthy. Everything is debated, considered, analyzed, absorbed. B wants an apple. B rejects the apple. B is a kid whose own sensory experience is so profound it conflicts with their internal hunger. I can see why this could drive a parent crazy. But for me, it's a giddy feeling, a roller coaster ride that I'm actually enjoying. I'm curious and, and share that curiosity with B, and together we start to share the successes of meeting their hunger. How frustrating it is to miss the mark, how an about face doesn't need to be rational but might have a scientific explanation. Who am I to judge craziness around food? And I realize my giddiness is being able to extend to B a compassion and acceptance. I am unwilling to extend to myself. For the entire weekend they are with me. They eat at the island, with me standing nearby or sitting at the table. 
I come to understand that their problems with food center around sensory experiences. Food can be overstimulating, like a loud party. The thought of food is different from its reality. Texture, color, smell, overwhelm. No wonder their taste won't settle. Taste is the least important sense at play. I teach them how to make eggs in the microwave, how you can change the texture and feel of the eggs by cooking time. I let them eat noodles with their fingers, the fingers, noodles, and mouth becoming one big mush of movement. I'm not responsible for teaching table manners. Maybe they will be important later. Right now, it feels more important to hold space for them, to discover nourishment, to project a sense of acceptance and establish connection. Later in the weekend, they ask for a fork for their noodles, and I am filled again with that rush of delight. But this delight high comes with a crash. Having a kid in my kitchen upends all of the protocols I have put in place to protect me from myself, to provide my own structure and limit my choices. I feel naked, like they can see all the stuff that came before in this kitchen. I feel trapped, like I used to feel at family dinners starting around age 13. My parents were granola, literally. My dad made handmade granola in huge batches once a month, and they ate it every single morning with sliced banana. My mom had recipe cards, some signature dishes from the Moosewood cookbook, and a lifetime of internalized gender roles at war with a fierce, formidable feminism. In my teen years, two key events happened. Mom went on a low-fat diet for a breast cancer study, and she started working a lot more. Chicken, broccoli, and noodles became every dinner. My dad was a full partner in sharing the cooking duties, but not a full partner in sharing the creativity required to deviate from the script. He loved to eat, but his tastes were uncomplicated, and after a day of social work and counseling, broken families and failing marriages, he had no capacity for complex decisions around dinner. My mother felt a sense of failure. She has always wanted to nourish others with beauty. I pause now, years later, to consider how my own failure to eat these basic dinners must have contributed to her guilt, confusion, and sorrow. I always was aware of their pain, their worry, their terror for my survival. But I don't think I ever really thought about the joy that came with the gig and the tremendous loss. What a gift it can be to feed a growing human being. That dinner could be a sunbreak in the storms of life, What a grief it can be to have a child reject that gift. That dinners could turn into a series of gray days without light. I have always, always loved my family. Loved our weirdness and power as a small but mighty foursome. So my discomfort in my body went to war with my desire to connect. When I was a teen, I bought 100 Easy Ways to Cook Chicken and took on the challenge of dressing up chicken breast in new and exciting ways. I found this combination of control, limitation, creative expression, and responsibility incredibly soothing, even as I found actually sitting down to eat with my family increasingly nerve-wracking. Cooking fostered pride in me. Eating fostered shame. Revisiting this history through a parental lens now eases up that trapped feeling. I am able to extend empathy to my parents, as I would a peer, a friend, 
and in doing so, feel the empathy coming back at me. I marvel at how transformative the relationships between me and these foster youth are, and how little the youth themselves might ever realize the gift they are giving me. Z shows up with little warning, and my anxiety spikes in preparation for her arrival. I narrow my focus on my cupboards, try to plan a meal. I feel unprepared. She's a great kid, I keep hearing. A typical teen, not a picky eater. Later, I laugh at this. Z turns out to be the pickiest eater I've ever had, but hiding it beautifully under a veneer of typical teen, which of course isn't really ever a thing. All teens want to be typical. None of them are. Which is about the only thing you can say is typical about a maturing human being. Z is a young woman who has been navigating the system and society with keen intelligence, who cultivates being just a little basic to slip under the radar who burns with an entirely unbasic fire. She's a super smart cookie, independent, powerful thinker, eager to battle authority, huge desire in a deceptively sweet and unassuming package. The kind of woman a certain kind of man finds terrifyingly confusing. She tells me stories of body shaming from her foster mother's boyfriend and the ways in which she protects herself against it but feels angry she can't protect her sisters or her friends. I feel hunger all the time. And at Z's age, I managed it by denying it. Z manages the fire inside her by refusing to commit to her hunger. If I ask if I can make her something, there's a bunch of indeterminate sounds, some hair swinging, and rapid eye movement, projecting a sort of confused dislocation from her own appetite. At first, I want to honor her choices and put food out for her, allow her space to approach on her own terms. But as that goes uneaten, I start to worry that I'm ceding my own responsibility. So, I start hanging out in the door of Z's room, draw her into conversation, then slowly draw the conversation into the kitchen. For all of her self-sufficiency, she loves conversation, and she follows me. And then I sneak attack. Super pasta. When she makes a choice, soup, we dive right back into the conversation. And it's the same thrill of directing an actor in a role who's given a fully committed, brilliant performance because they believe they did it all on their own. That all those bold, congruent, passionate choices were their sole discovery. Eventually, her bowl is finished. But before it is, I experience an odd hunger myself. A hunger to eat with her. It's not a social or familiar pressure. I've got nothing to prove. I've reached my nutritional needs for the day. And yet, this is a hunger as real as any other. I feel connected to her. And connected to her own hunger for both nourishment and the world. Kids need structure. And traumatized young people grappling with instability and impermanence and loss of control need both structure and autonomy. I think about the choices my parents gave me, the choices I give my students and my colleagues, all of us containing coet appetites. Our emotions take up the room in our bodies, in the world. My own parents must have talked in tense tones for hours, debating whether to let me eat whenever or demand participation in family meals, whether to bargain or demand, 
whether to conflate calories and family connection time or separate them the way I would always separate my food as a child. Casseroles distilled into essential ingredients. Peas over there, chicken over there, noodles over there. Later to become protein over there, carbs over there, fat over there. Each macronutrient accounted for. Did my parents physically experience the violent, contradictory hungers in my young adult body as I restricted meals and crept into the kitchen late at night to feed myself out of sight? My desire to remove myself from the casserole of my family changed the taste of what it meant to be a family. I am late to the joys of feeding a child a meal. Refueling and nourishing ourselves is crucial, but sometimes our own needs are unclear. Trust in our bodies can be broken. Signals can be indistinct or cacophonous, unreliable, crackling like static on the electrical pathways of our stressed out brains. I find that helping others in these moments offers healing. Attending to someone else's needs calms my own needs down. I'm still scared of meals, but I work on continually reframing meals as a tool, not the goal. The goal is nourishment. Nourishment is a place where I feel confident, where I can use my experience as an artist and an educator and share my pure and immediate joy in the science and imagination of cooking. To create something that previously didn't exist. I recognize the myriad ways trauma, anxiety, betrayal, distrust, and loss can show up in the body. I know 100 ways to cook chicken. I know infinitely more ways to cook up compassionate curiosity. We're having chicken and broccoli. There's pasta if you want it. Come tell me about your day. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Dosa, Ashley Akamides, Kelly Manier, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Papano, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Nico Paolo, The New Pornographers, Kimi Fukuhara, Riley Walker, Wojciech Golchuski, Marco Beltrami, Otley Orvarsson, Brian Eno, Uncle Tupelo, Ben Soleil, Hem, John Bryan, Keith Kenneth, and Goldman, and Philip Glass. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I handle the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and write some of the original music. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website marketing. And Catherine Campbell keeps the engines running behind the scenes. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM.